If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening.
Well, here we are. I am taking a break from my break. Uh, newborn time, family lockdown. Because this coronavirus COVID-19 stuff is serious enough that it warranted planning this special episode today with my friend Robbie Evans. Robbie, thank you for being here. Glad to be here. So some people, mostly online, uh, but in other people's real world lives, are responding to this virus with like various theological claims. I do not think (laughs) that is what we should be doing right now, even if we have theologies that we hold to. I think this is a time for something that um, we really try and uh, value on this show, which is like a science-informed faith. Um, not a faith that wants to tell science what it can do or is allowed to do, but really says, all right, what do we know and how can we let that um, apply to our faith? And so most of this conversation today is going to be about science. There is one theological question that I got asked. Uh, I uh, will talk about how I got these questions, um, and then I'll answer that and get your thoughts, and then the next 25 questions are going to be for you, Robbie, and about Sort okay. of the science behind all of this. Um, so let me just address that question and then we can move on. That question was, how do we have rational and beneficial conversations with people who are claiming that this is an act of God or a judgment of sin or that God could stop this if he wanted to? Um, that's the question. I, I don't know, Robbie, I'm kind of curious what you think. My, my uh, instinct here is to really lean into uh, don't argue with people unless they're really interested um, in what you have to say. And most of the time, people are not that interested in what you have to say. Probably, given the severity of the situation, uh, cut and run. Cut your losses. Move on to talking to someone else who might be convinced um, and might actually change their habits. Because what we really need here are changing of behaviors. Um, the other thing I'll say is that you could, you should set up your own boundaries. So... If you want to quarantine yourself or your family and believe that's best and your you know, mother doesn't want that or doesn't want to do that, doesn't believe she should, you set a rule. She's not allowed over. You set some boundaries for your own health and whatever, liter- literal boundaries in this case, spatial boundaries. Um, that's kind of my two cents. Robbie, anything to add on this question of how to talk to people who have kind of wily ideas? Nothing novel. I mean, it's hard to get like, this is your turf, not mine, but like, it's hard to go there because you're going to have somebody feeling that you're attacking the authenticity of their faith or something like, or something like that. I guess what I would just think is that I find it highly implausible that a loving God would want people to be hurt. Like it's one thing to have bad things happen as a sign of some kind of ending, but I would assume that the Christ we all follow would say, even when things go bad, take care of each other. Um, and so that's what I've been on, but yeah, you don't want to throw, throw good losses after bad if it's not going anywhere. Yeah. And, and especially when there's not a lot of time to spare here and that's kind of the theme of this conversation, but Robbie, let's start off. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and why, so so you wrote this document basically, I'm doing this wrong because it's all off the cuff. So there is a link in the show notes of this episode to a Google doc that Robbie posted I shared about it on my Facebook, um, on my own Facebook and in our You Have Permission group, which is where I fielded a bunch of the questions that I'm going to ask you from patrons of the show via that Facebook group. But I would say if if you can, 
pause this, go read that document. It's about a five to 10 minute read and then come back and listen. We will summarize some of the document, but not all of it. And then we will get to a bunch of sort of follow-up questions that people have. So if you can go to the document now, pause us and come back. So now assuming that everybody is an ideal listener and has just done that and now they're back, they've got all that info in their head. Uh, Robbie, why did you write this document? That's my first question. Um, much like yourself, Dan, I get accused of being too online sometimes and I couldn't (laughs) help but notice that it was like all these different opinions on what this thing is and what the implications are and what's real. I noticed that there was a lot of, um, bias based on like where people get their news. And I was just frustrated that this is, should be something of a scientific fact, at least as far as scientific consensus on what this whole thing could mean. And the fact that people are believing all this different stuff based on politicians or on media types was sort of making me just sad. And so I put together this document trying to compile all the evidence possible to say, here's what it is. Here's what it means. Here's what to do about it. And here's the urgency because if we can even convince, you know, five, 10 people to, maybe help someone out by not getting them sick. Like it's worth hours of our time. Yeah. It's sort of like, it's becoming almost like a climate change type thing where it's become politicized. And it's the kind of thing you do not want to be politicized because it is just actual physical stuff and is not about what's morally best for welfare position, you know, whatever this is like just a straight up science and it should not be politicized. Um, so you're one of my smartest friends. You are the person oh, I most – yeah, you're welcome. I most wanted to talk to on on this issue. Besides just being – like having sheer processing power, IQ, you also work uh, at a genetics diagnostics company. So you are sort of adjacent to basically big healthcare questions, trends, uh, experts. What else do you want to say about sort of your own qualifications as a non-scientist – yeah. Uh, to to compile and synthesize this information for our benefit. Yeah, so it's really important to note that, right? Like one thing that I'm always wary of are people who say they know everything about everything. And even in my document, I'm clear to establish that I'm not a scientist. So I run strategy and operational analysis for a diagnostic firm. You mentioned that we take blood and we use it to sequence DNA and find, you know, risks of various things we are first cousins of the diagnostics businesses who will now track COVID by taking cheek swabs and doing similar chemical analyses to identify where the virus is there. Yeah. Uh, my role in particular is like to use data and talking to experts to build a cohesive vision of the world and build a plan for what to do about that vision of the world. So even though I am not myself, and epidemiologists, like it is fundamentally like my role, the company to talk to world-class scientists, data modelers, et cetera, and like bring that together to a cohesive um, kind of call to action. So in that sense, like the, the document that I posted is like the exact thing I would do at work. It's just like for the greater public good. And, and when we go through the questions, I'll be very clear on times where it's like, there are certain things I'm not going to know the answer to based on like my personal training, but I've, I've consumed the relevant input and I'm just going to kind of regurgitate that back for your audience as somebody who's just like done the legwork. So not everyone's stuck spending 40 hours reading articles. Right. Um, and that's, that's kind of how I came at came at it. Uh, we're not here to brag about our jobs or anything, but I think it's just <laughs> worth knowing like 
You are paid a lot of money to be at a director level position for a genetics tech company and own a home in Palo Alto, California. I mean, like that is your level. That is where you're at. And who, you know, a I'm lot not of trying money to... is debatable, but you know, uh, well, whatever. Yes, if you include... I, I sit in the C-suite meetings and I hear from chief medical officers, chief scientific, chief scientific officers. This is not just kind of like talking to like random people into college. The guys that I talk to, like my my mentors, are the guys who went to college and are on a first name basis with the guys you see on TV, right? So they okay. know Fauci, they know Francis Collins. It's like they're compadres. Yeah. Um, and so when I'm getting feedback from the top, top people in my life, I can trust it is within one degree of the best experts on earth. And so that's why I have this privileged position, even though like I'm not the expert, I can pick up the phone and call somebody where I know I'm getting the best information that's possibly available. So I want to, one quick word here about people who have mental health uh, issues, especially anxiety. Um, this is maybe not the episode for you if you struggle with sort of like extreme anxiety um, I will try and post something about, you know, what you can do. We could just skip right ahead to like what you can do. Uh, let, let's do that first. So, Robbie, just if someone's like, you know what, I shouldn't listen to 40 minutes of this. It will <laughs> freak me out. I do want to know what I ought to do. G- give like a five sentence. They could stop right now if this is just not a good idea for them to listen to the whole thing. Yeah. So a lot of the little memo that I wrote or whatever I call it, the document is around the speed at which the healthcare system will, will be dealing with this thing. But the good news is this is a very rare case where the selfish thing to do is also the right thing to do for the society. Like normally if you're in wartime, right? Like hoarding assets or, right. you know, not contributing is like not helping the cause. In this case, if you're really nervous about the risk of getting yourself sick or helping someone else get sick, you should just adopt a very principled stance on the so-called social social distancing, which is just the sim- simple version is like minimizing human interaction, right? Every time you meet somebody in the world, you are risking infecting them and vice versa. And if you dramatically slow that down, you will protect yourself. And if all of us do that, then this is, entire society will improve. So you can be selfish and help yourself and relieve your anxiety and help society all in the same time, which is normally not the case. So it's kind of nice in that regard. Okay. So if that's you and you think probably don't need to spend time, take off now, Godspeed, social distance yourself. And I'll, I'll add one thing there. Like, so, so I, I have folks in my life that have got anxiety. And one thing that's tough about this thing is they're real. And we'll get to, I'm sure is, the rules of what to do are not entirely clear. Like, there's no perfect guideline on what to do for social distancing. It's kind of up to you and your logic. And that's very challenging because you're left with a term that's called like uh, decision fatigue, right? Each decision, like today and my wife went yeah. to the grocery store. We like agonized over which grocery store and what time of day and do you wear gloves and all this stuff. And so I would say like all things in life, I would sit down when I'm feeling calm and make a general game plan like, I am going to go to the grocery store. I'm not going to get a haircut. I am going to see my mom. I am not going to see my nephew and like make those rules. Right. Because I presume that at that point in time, like following a set of rules you've written down is less stressful than trying to solve everything on the fly every single time. I think that's very wise. Great. So hopefully people have read the document, but um, whether or not they, if if they did and you just want to remind them or if they didn't because they aren't going to, or they're driving or something. (laughs) First question is, summarize the document in one sentence. 
the fundamental premise of the document is that right now the danger to the overall health system and to individuals of COVID-19 is plainly apparent in places like Italy. Uh, and we should not ignore that or dismiss that because we are on the exact same trajectory as Italy was. And therefore the logical conclusion is that that is our future and we can see it right now. Okay. So now fill that out, fill that out a bit more. Yeah, the document is called We Are Italy, meaning that we're on the same trajectory as Italy. First of all, what is happening now in Italy in case people aren't super up on the news? Yeah, so the whether Italy or elsewhere, I mean, the, the fundamental problem with this COVID-19, a.k.a. the coronavirus, um, is that it spreads really quickly and it is pretty lethal, but also it has a really high rate of hospitalizations. And so what happens is if you spread too quickly, enough folks will get sick who need hospital beds that the fixed supply of hospital beds in your region, Italy, Iran, America, eventually, will simply be overwhelmed. And so when that happens, like normally the healthcare system has enough slack in the system to, to accept people who are sick and need help, whatever. If you have a car accident, there's probably, excuse me, probably an ambulance or, a, or an ER bed waiting for you. If all the ambulances are full, then suddenly the mortality rate of a car accident goes way up, right? And so the risk of this thing is not just the, the disease itself, like having its own life-threatening effects. It's that if we all get sick too fast, then the healthcare system is not equipped to help everyone because it will simply run out of available care. And that's what's happening in Italy. So there's um, quotes posted in my paper directly from frontline physicians in Italy saying that at this point in time, they are functionally adopting wartime conditions, meaning triage. So they have 10 beds available, 100 folks come in, and they're looking who's old, who's young, who's got a term called comorbidities, meaning like things that could also cause you to die, like comorbid. So who's got lung cancer, who's got history of smoking. And they have to pick and choose, basically, who lives and dies because they have to decide who gets the hospital bed that gives that person the best chance of living. And so uh, there right now is some discussion in Italy about formalizing a scorecard, for example, like, or giving doctors back to our like uh, decision fatigue issue, like a way to have an easy rubric to make those calls because it's just getting worse. And so there's, Stories of folks being, you know, put on cots and tents of like general observation, but they don't have oxygen or ventilation or things you need when your lungs get uh, challenged. And so, you know, Italy did not take the disease seriously enough, early enough. They're very social culture. And so people were going out, they were having dinners, whatever. And two and a half weeks later, suddenly like tons of folks are hitting hospitals all at once. And so the warning to us is you guys have to stop having social interactions, human interactions before you think you need it because it's all delayed indicator, right? And so you, if you stop interacting only when the hospitals fill up, you are 14 days or more too late and you're going to have that cascading effect of even more overload coming in. Yeah. So the real issue here is not so much the virus itself. Uh, it's more the overloading of the hospitals and medical facilities. Yeah. And it's a lot of like a lot of that online debate that really bothered me was people being like, Oh, it's, it's, it's really lethal. It's 3.4% mortality, meaning 3.4% of cases have death. And someone else or a lot of folks are like, no, that's only the early cases in China. It's really like 1%. That's besides the point. The seasonal flu is 0.1%, meaning one in a thousand people die. 
this is probably between 0.5% and 1%. 0.5% uh, is probably the very low end, meaning five times the flu's morbidity rate. But just looking at morbidity ignores the real, the real issue is it's the combination of morbidity and speed. I made a pithy line in the memo has like the Goldilocks of viruses, like just contagious enough, just, just, just like um, deadly enough and just sneaky enough because you're yeah. contagious before you're um, symptomatic that these things all combine. Like, for example, if the virus was like, ironically, if a virus is insanely deadly, like if you got a virus and then five minutes later burst out in hives and five minutes later you died, it wouldn't spread, right? Because you just right. die too fast. And so the thing about COVID is that it sort of just hangs out in your body for a while and you're fine and you don't realize you're sick and you're giving it to everyone else. And that's what causes this hospital thing is that you will wake up one day and have thousands of cases all at once who turn symptomatic um, because of that Goldilocks effect of just enough lethality contagiousness and like sneakiness. So what is the evidence that we actually are going to be where Italy is within a matter of weeks? How, why are you so confident about that? I mean, I hope, I hope we don't get there. Right. But the early data is, is kind of screaming a particular single story where the experts are all kind of aligned and the early anecdotal evidence supports that story, which is, you know, it's, I would avoid looking at cases or looking at news where it's like, oh, today there's 400 confirmed cases. Today's 1,000 confirmed cases. I'm thinking, okay, there's 1,000 cases here in the States out of 300 million people. We're in great shape. The real issue with viruses is, is the growth rate, right? It's just compounding growth, and you can close a gap really, really fast. All the data from the States, and frankly, the data from the UK, Spain, uh, Switzerland, France, like all the Western world, is growing at about 30 to 33% per day, meaning like you double the cases every 60 hours. And that's the exact same growth rate as Italy. I have a chart in my paper where these things are plotted on a day-by-day -day basis on a logarithmic chart, and you can't even see the USA because the lines are all so overlapping. So if we're growing at the same growth rate and it's doubling every two days, the difference between taking our 1,000 people today that have the disease confirmed and hitting some percentage of the population of 300 million is a matter of weeks. It's not a matter of months. And so it's much more important to look at growth rates than it is to look at nominal cases because it's the same path. It's just a time delay. And that's why looking at Italy is kind of like looking at our future unless we change that path. Yeah. And thankfully, some changes are being made. The question will be, how effective are they? What else do we need? To that end, I'm sort of like, there's a part of me that is like, well, in China, where it started and where it got really, really bad in certain areas, they had about 9,000 deaths and it's tapering <clears throat> way down and they're a bigger country than we are. So why would, it, why would we not assume that America would have 9,000 deaths or so or even fewer since we're about a third as many people? Like what are what's the difference between what happened and is continuing to happen in China versus what we anticipate here? Why not? Why wouldn't it just be similar? Yeah, that's tricky, and and this is where we're starting to deviate a bit from like the shared expertise that I've worked with. But yeah. the, there's a couple of things. One is the the good thing, for better or for worse, from Italy is that we're confident the data is real. Uh, ah. It's still not entirely clear if the data out of China is really the whole story. Uh, in particular with recent infection rates. Secondarily, like um, 
there's a couple ways you can contain this thing, and it it depends on a lot of societal factors. And what China did was in very, very aggressive, top-down, authoritarian um, level of social distancing to the point where you now need like government permission, permission to leave your house. And so, you know, if we crack down like that, yes, you could reasonably expect uh, the rate to decline. That's also very challenging in a country with the liberty and freedom and distributed government of America. Also, China has one titanic advantage over us, which is they have um, tons of testing happening. Like their their testing program for all the the crap that China gets is honestly stunning. They have these five man teams where if you have a confirmed case, they go to you, they interview you about everyone you've seen the last ten days, and they chase down all those people and they test them. So there were cases of like Dan, if you had gotten confirmed of this disease. And you said, I have crossed paths with 1,700 people. Because they are a surveillance state, they would find all 1,700 people inside of 96 hours and test them. It's like a chase the disease. Right. Our testing is stunningly ad- inadequate, and that's a topic for the political world someday later. We're going to avoid the polarization today, but like we have so far as a country, broadly speaking, utterly failed in terms of developing um, – a large number of tests. So we don't really know who has a disease right now. And so that option is gone. There is, I would find it incredibly unlikely that we will catch up to the point where we have a lot more tests available than people need testing in like probably ever, but like at least a couple weeks to a month in this thing crests. So like the China strategy is gone. Right. Uh, the South Korea strategy is also gone. That's super intense testing, but without the whole authoritarian lockdown deal. So, and then also like, we don't know if China's data is real. So, you yeah. know, it's just, it's, it's hard to say if it, what we could do to be like them because we, we, we lack certain tools in the toolkit and also we can't trust their data. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. Two other things about China. One is they like built a hospital in four days because they can do that kind of a thing with centralized control and also shared with South Korea and other Asian countries. There is a culture there of isolating when you're sick, wearing masks and stuff that is so much more ingrained. And people are frankly a lot more willing to do what the government tells them to do than we are here. Well, the last thing is that, you know, all the things that we in the States never had to really worry about. Like when I first heard about COVID-19, I was like, yeah, whatever. I've heard this before. I've heard about the swine flu and I've right. heard about avian flu and heard about SARS, heard about MERS. Well, those things actually did happen for real in China. So they have baked in like pandemic response teams. They have local organizations. They have a, a response mechanism where they snap into, into action, not in the right. sense of being afraid of the government, but like they actually know what to do. You contrast that here at the States where we're three weeks into this thing and we're still debating if this virus is real. It's like, to me, like not to get meta, but this feels kind of like all the postmodern, nothing is real. I have my own evidence. I'm not going to believe in science or vaccinations or global warming or pick your topic du jour. Like all that crap is going to crest in this disease because we are utterly unprepared to deal with it because we have no response mechanism and don't even believe the problem in the first place. Like nobody else has that problem. Nobody. So I think that the pessimistic version for all you who are not anxious and who didn't turn this off is that again, I'd love to be wrong. I feel like American society in general is especially ill-equipped to respond to a call for voluntary collective action. 
Yeah, we're we're gonna see how that goes. Um, I'm I'm fairly uh, I'm fairly impressed thus far uh, with people, at least more in my circles. Um, you know, the type of people I have on Facebook and Twitter and, and know in my real life, people are pretty responsive to this stuff, but we will see. Um, yeah, I've got it, a couple. It may, bi- it, may, it may bifurcate by kind of populations, you know, right. like I live in the Bay Area. We are on we are on the South Korea plan. Like we've closed schools, closed offices like I'm working from home. I have a two year old, a five year old and a seven year old. And I'm also public company, like you know team lead i'm trying to manage this crisis all of them like kids climbing all over me but like we're all home right because they're trying right. to do the right thing and then there's stories from other parts of the country where like you've got mass gatherings of folks who are like you can't hold me down so look the sad truth is we're gonna have a difference in infection rate based on the culture of those areas and so whatever any one person can do in the area will help and that's the good thing so whether you live in a high response area or a low response area, like your individual call to action is the same, but we'll see. Like, I agree. Like it's going to be very interesting how it breaks out locally. Before we get to the questions that were submitted um, by patrons, I've got a couple about um, what your family's doing. Talk about what my family's doing um, just in terms of applying this information to our lives. So what is the specific lockdown that your family is currently putting into place? Yeah. So, we kept our kid home from school. Like not only is there this, but like then my daughter's school had hand, foot and mouth last Wednesday. And I was like, you know what? We're just not going to school. Yeah. We're good. We're not yeah. going anywhere. Um, I have adopted the, the, the posture that like, why, like why do it? You know? So we're at home. We've been home for five days. Now we take bike rides in the neighborhood, but we don't, we don't engage in any kind of unnecessary social interaction. Like for example, even now I'm not going to see my nephews or my mom, until all of them had four or five days clean at home because then they would be showing symptoms if they were sick. Now, again, even then, you can be asymptomatic if you have the disease, especially young folks and kids. They don't get real sick, but it's better than nothing. And we'll expand the circle of trust as we have folks we know are safe. So, for example, one of my best friends who's got young kids who are close to my kids, like we're all home for a week. And so I can pretty confidently trust that after seven, 10 days that our two families can meet and know that we're safe. So it's like expanding the circle. Uh, In the document, uh, I noted that it's hard to know what to do, like go to the grocery store, go to the gym. Uh, One of my very best friends is a gym owner, so I had to tell him I'm not going to come in this week. Um, I'll still pay you, but I'm not going to come in. And uh, I just decided to imagine that every single human interaction in my life has like a $100 cover charge. So if I was going to the haircut place, it's not 19 bucks, it's 119 bucks. Would you still go? If you really care that much, like fine, get a haircut. You don't have to be literally quarantined, but you know, so we still bike in the neighborhood. We still got groceries today, but we've probably cut our human to human vector interaction by at least 99% considering when I go in the office on a given day, I'm going to see 40 people. So I've cut out 40 folks on Monday, 40 folks on Tuesday, 40 folks on Sunday at church. You know, our church is closed for the week and probably the weeks to come. So, you know, you don't have to be paranoid like it's a nuclear fallout, but I just treat every interaction with a level of like intentionality around what's the point of this. And we're also trying to make up the gap by we're doing like conference call hangouts with our friends, playing board games online. And frankly, it's worked pretty well. So at that point, like, why would I risk it? Just it's 50 days or so, hopefully why bother? 
Yeah, we are at, um, you know, we have Soren is three weeks old uh, as of Saturday. So we're being especially careful. I wish there was more data about newborns and infants. There's not a ton. Nope. The data looks pretty good, but there's just not very much of it. Uh, if he were two, I would be less worried. Uh, so we started earlier, but about by four days ago on Thursday, we are now full on zero visitors, no family, nobody at all. If people are dropping off meals because we have people dropping us meals, um, which is awesome, we meet them outside. They can say hi to Soren from six feet away. And then we bring in the food and wipe off the containers before we eat it and reheat it, especially if it's warm. Um, and uh, we're so far, we're getting groceries delivered. Eventually, those will all probably turn off. Like currently, Amazon Fresh is not working, but Instacart is working. Uh, I've gone to the grocery store a couple times. I just sanitize my hands before and after, and I wash all of our groceries in the sink before I put them away. And that basically means nothing's getting in. And we are also doing a thing. I started a spreadsheet with some close friends and family. Uh, you know, let me know the day that you guys also went into full lockdown. And then 10 days later, we'll know that we're good to hang. And so I'm looking forward to about a week from now. We will have our first friends that have each quarantined for 10 days, and then we can go over to each other's houses knowing that we're basically good, assuming they have no symptoms, of course. Right. And um, this and- is a, yeah, exactly. And that's awesome. And this is like a, this is probably a good time to mention, like, not ever can do that, right? So if you, like somebody on sure. your page mentioned like they were work at a grocery store, like the, the part of this is, you know, Dan and I are both folks that have various forms of privilege, like this is kind of time for the privileged to take one on the nose so that those who don't have privilege can like go yeah. into their jobs. Like go Use work your as a, be it, like if you're a garbage man or you're a bus driver or you're a grocery worker or you're a, obviously any kind of hospital worker, like you got to work. Right. And so this is kind of like a coalition of the willing and able, and then everyone else just do the best you can. Right. Like you don't have to avoid the whole world, but it's like wash your hands like a maniac. Don't, cough on people or be coughed on people. I just, it tends, it requires a level of attention. Right. And so to me, it's looking at all that voluntary stuff where it's like, you know, I don't have to do this. Right. Obviously of my cover charge idea, if it was, I have to go to work today. If I don't go to work, I'm going to get fired. Like obviously I'd pay a 50 or a hundred dollar cover charge to go to work right. and I get fired. So like that passes the test. Right. Right. It's just having that level of discipline where it's applicable. Um, and it is different for everyone, totally. So it's not like we're saying all of society can't move, but if 40% of us move not at all and the rest move only when necessary, it's still a titanic improvement and everyone can do the best they can to maintain their their their, their livelihood and whatnot. Yeah, and if you want to learn more about that, just look up any of these articles on flattening the curve and their, the uh, Washington Post or who is it that had that really great um, the the animation one? Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's Washington Post. Uh, you can just search for Washington Post uh, simulation. That should pull up, or it's a link in my thing. But they run a live simulation of how fast the disease grows based on a certain number of people self quarantining, even if the rest kind of keep going willy nilly. And you know, every little bit does make a difference. And so it's just like if you can do the best you can, right? Yep. Exactly. So now uh, we're going to go to questions from the Facebook group. I'm not including any of the questions that were like specific medical advice because neither of us are doctors. So if listen you have to spe- doctors. Yes. Listen call to your experts. doctor. Uh, the moral I, story is listen to experts. 
I do have a link to some CDC stuff that's kind of general guidelines around personal health, uh, if you have symptoms, how to keep your family safe, etc. So you can look at that. But here are some questions about the virus itself, and we're going to start there based on all your research, Robbie. How long does this thing stay in the air on surfaces? Are, are different surfaces different, you know, wood, glass, etc.? Uh, we're still figuring it out, but the general guidance that I've read is that it depends on the porousness. So for example, if it's wood or cardboard or whatever, it's probably less than a day, maybe as low as four to six hours, but roughly a day is safe. And then it's like the harder surfaces, glass, steel, it might take two to four days, but you know, frankly, these are still pretty early estimates and this is all like every day there's some new article, someone's trying to figure it out, but loose loosey goosey one to four days okay and that's that's on services and the disease is transferred almost exclusively through moisture droplets so this is like coughing up moisture or sneezing i actually haven't read if like sweat does it but it's mostly the thing it's coughing and sneezing and stuff but basically the longer a droplet of water can survive on something the longer the disease can so naturally like glass is going to last longer than say cardboard so it's not in the air except for the time it takes for the spittle to exactly. go from your mouth to the surface. Yeah, so it's not I an sneeze, airborne disease. Yeah, I'm if I sneeze, I am quote unquote aerosolizing my moisture, right? I'm right. I'm releasing a jet of high moisture air and then that that sneeze will linger in the air, but eventually it will it will uh resolve onto the ground and no longer be in the air. So unless you're like near someone if they sneeze like if someone sneezes on the corner of your block and you walk in that same area an hour later i don't i can't imagine the sneeze is still lingering in the air but i've never used magical sneeze of vision to confirm this (laughs) uh next one is how long after a person gets sick can they can a test detect that they have it so for instance this person's friend was sick 11 days ago but didn't get a test for obvious reasons couldn't get one he's recovering still has a cough it'd sure be good to know what he has been sick with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's unclear. So the, the, the trickier one is like, how soon could you test someone? Like, so it's like, can you, can you confirm it on day two on day four? Right. Uh, if someone's on day 11, certainly they could be confirmed if they went for testing. Um, frankly, I doubt they would get it right now because the tests are precious resources. Um, but uh, the disease last, it lasts a while. It seems like it's 10 to 14 days, like a flu. So like the, the way you fight it is not dissimilar from flu. You have to rest. You're going to have a fever. You're going to have to have liquids and that kind of thing. And so it's prob- it's a longer than like a 24-hour flu. It's like a real influenza or whatever yeah. um, back in the old days. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that you could probably be tested and test positive like, between 12, 2 and 14 days is what I've read. But again, like that's where I would probably Google what the latest like CDC expert guidelines is because that's not the – I've been looking more at like spread, charts, projections, and less about what do I as one individual do for diagnostics. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, and anyway, that friend of yours, unless he just went to China uh, or has been in contact with someone who's already tested positive – won't be able to get a test for a while anyway. So by that day, he will be two weeks, three weeks past, and it, it won't matter, unfortunately. Yeah, if they're if they're doing okay, just like lock it yep. down, get yep. better, you know. Um, next question. We see that the common flu mutates annually. Mm-hmm. So if or rather when COVID-19 mutates, 
would we expect it to become more virulent or be rendered less effective? What makes it more contagious than the common flu? Yeah, so I, it's it's wild speculation what will happen when a COVID mutates. Uh, again, like if it becomes hyper deadly in a weird way, it'll spread less well because like a dead, like Ebola is crazy deadly, but you know who has it immediately. You could like you can isolate it and you can you can quarantine it. Um, so if it mutates to have an even longer incubation, like yeah, it'll spread even worse. But I've I've not particularly read anything where it's like worrying about COVID nineteen version two it's just like here's the first one Um, i can't remember i can't remember exactly what i heard but it was something along the lines of uh these ones that come straight from animals don't actually do the same mutation pattern as the regular flu which is endemic in human bodies could be i don't don't remember but the guy did not seem particularly worried about that aspect of it is all i remember from it yeah as far as like why it's more contagious uh, i'm sure there are special like virology things to know yeah the the main the main thing that i understand is like when when you don't know you're contagious like you'll spread it more often right so the one of the nice things about most diseases like if you have kids they say if you have a fever stay home so normally you have a virus start fighting it off and your body tells you hey you're sick right and so you know you're sick if you don't know you're sick obviously it's way worse and so it seems like that is one of the key drivers so there's probably some other you know biochemical microbiology involved that i don't know about so back to graphs and uh, forecasting dates which is more your specialty let's talk about a vaccine what are we yeah. looking at? And is there anything that you have read in particular about COVID-19 that makes a vaccine any different? Or is it just the normal vaccine timeline that we're looking at? And that is X long. Yeah. So um, I'm not a vaccine maker, but I trust Anthony Fauci, who is like, of all, of all things, I'd say, if you want like an expert to listen to, Fauci at CDC or at the National Institute for like allergies and whatever it is, he's like an absolute OG, he's the man, whatever he says, take it as gospel. So he has said, anybody saying we're having a vaccine this year or expecting a vaccine this year is almost certainly wrong. Vaccines take 12 to 18 months to develop and to test and validate. Yes, you can fast track things, but the notion of a vaccine this summer is just not plausible to me or the folks that I've talked to who are like actual lifelong diagnostic, you know, disease dudes and dudettes. So a vaccine's probably in 2021, and then drugs, uh, developing drugs is long, slow, and arduous. The best case is that there could be drugs that exist today that could actually work on this thing. So you try out different drugs. There's a couple of drugs in particular that are being looked at. Uh, Gilead Sciences has one in particular that's being tested out. And if they happen to work on COVID, like, great, but that's kind of like a sneaky win. The same way that, you know, aspirin is both a pain reliever and a phenomenal drug for heart disease, right? Right. Blood um, thinner, right. Exactly. So so we'll see. I would not put my eggs in that basket, but, like, as a human being, I hope it works out. We'll know that. I think the timeline on that one is a couple of months. I believe I saw news today, March 16th, that the first – person to get approved to try the drug with covid went down like today so they're they're beginning it now and presumably they're going to have to try it you know dozens or hundreds of times and if they get the drug to enough folks quickly that could happen in weeks so uh we could know new stuff in april but uh in general the 
the news that I've heard from folks who are a long time, like pharma execs is that they're not planning on a drug till at least the fall. And so basically from now until fall, the safe assumption is we have to do this ourselves through behavioral change. You could have a bolt of lightning miracle, but that is not the plan. The plan is to grind it out. Um, there is a little bit of confusion because there are multiple coronaviruses and there are multiple COVID diseases that are caused by these other coronaviruses. What is, I guess, most important to know about the fact that this is one particular coronavirus among many and that COVID-19 is a new disease different from previous COVID diseases? Yeah, there's also multiple SARSes. So they all have different, right. they mean different things like SARSes. Uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome, something yeah, like that. Severe acute respiratory syndrome. And then uh, coronavirus, I, I, I don't actually know what that means. I think it has to do with the way it's, yeah, like, it's like shaped the, or like the yes, form of it is. the It's virus. the way it's shaped, yeah. Um, and so, so I don't, I have no idea, frankly, if, uh, if this is particularly unique as far as SARS and coronaviruses are concerned. Um, I'm looking at it more as like a healthcare system shock. Uh, presumably, like those diseases have some kind of treatment because we've had coronas and SARSes before. I don't know if they are vaccinated or if they're drugs or if they're whatever. Um, so I can't answer that one. I'm sure some scientist somewhere yeah. has posted that online. So find a real expert and ask him. Here's a uh, devil's advocate pushback. Since it's very difficult to get people tested quickly, and I think you, I could add, since we're behind on testing in the States. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are we tracking the possible advance of the disease by tracking if hospital admissions have increased? And if there hasn't been a spike in hospital admissions, might that suggest that it's actually not spreading as fast as we have feared? Yeah, that'd be lovely, but I don't believe that's the case. So, so it is certainly true that we have lots of folks who pretty clearly have the disease who are not being tested. The term for this, I believe, is being banked. So like we have thousands of folks who are... We know they've got it. Once they can get tested, they'll test them and confirm it'll exist. So you'll see the confirmed numbers of disease rise rapidly as tests come online. Uh, but you can also track the thing on the question, which is hospital admission. So, for example, I saw a stat yesterday out of one of the New York hospitals, um, New York City, which is also a hotspot, um, NYC, Bay Area, and Seattle, they're currently kind of like the leaders, uh, for lack of a better word in this. And they have a massive surge in they call it like either flu symptoms or like pneumonia symptoms, which it's it's just completely implausible that all these thousand people who arrived have the flu or pneumonia. Um, it's highly probable they've got COVID. They just can't call it that yet. So yes, if we saw nobody going to hospitals, uh, it would be it would be a sign that maybe it's not really hitting us. But what we're hearing now is early reports out of Seattle, out of New York, and starting to hit in the Bay, but not as bad, like people coming in with something and that something sure matches the presentation of COVID. So the natural conclusion is that's what they've got. Yeah. Um, there is alarm about Italy, uh, but there are um, also, oh, sorry, this is a different question. Um, so we've heard that the immunocompromised and the elderly are at the highest risk. Is that, is that consistent with what we're seeing in Italy. Yeah, so it's really important to note that. So the distribution curve of severity is quite steep. Um, people who are 90 plus are at tremendous risk. People who are 80 plus are at very, very high risk, 70 high risk, 60, 60 pretty high risk. 
then it falls off a cliff for 40s, 30s, and under. Kids are, thank God, very, very low risk comparatively, which makes this different from the, the Spanish flu back in 1918, which targeted children um, very horrifically. Um, so yeah, uh, it's a big difference in age. Um, one thing that I will note is if, if you know somebody out there who's saying, oh, I'm 24, like I'm going to be fine. Just because you won't die doesn't mean it won't suck. Like, go Google somebody who's been on a ventilator for three weeks, which means like you're strapped to a gurney or a bed and have a tube down your throat breathing for you while you have sedation keeping you from freaking out at this like foreign tube in your body. That still happens to like, you know, kids our age who recover. It could be one five hundred, could be one thousand. I forget the exact number, but the lethality is strongly biased towards folks that are either older or have a comorbidity, meaning they have like, you know, they have emphysema, they've got a history of smoking. So Italy is especially um, at risk for this. Like a lot of folks there smoke, a lot of folks there are quite elderly. Um, so yeah, like Italy's mortality rate might be different than ours, but if their system is like totally overwhelmed, I don't think the saving grace for us will be, oh, we have a different distribution of like boomers versus millennials. Uh, that might shape the curve a little bit, but I don't see it as kind of like a fail safe. So yeah, Italy could be the worst case scenario, but um, I wouldn't take a ton of solace in that. None of the experts that I've talked to think of that as being some kind of material differentiation from the USA. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, What will indicate us hitting a ceiling here in the States or maybe the top of the curve uh, as we might describe it? Like how would we know? Is there a ceiling? Um, What would that look like? That's going to be hard. I'm guessing like the, the best answer to that, honestly, is listen to Dr. Fauci's weekly press conferences because he'll tell you and we're peaking probably. I mean, the, the max is if you, if you have a full-blown pandemic, the way it burns out is you get to herd immunity, meaning 40 up to 70%, 70% of the population has had the disease and beaten it. So therefore it can't spread very fast. Because like if I've had it and you've had it, and we meet with someone who's got it, we can't get it again, right? To be clear, that's not what happened in China. That is not why their curve dropped. Right. So they that's have like, not gotten to herd immunity. Yes, yeah, so it'll, it'll peter out that way. And some countries like the UK are trying a pretty novel concept, which is like, just let everyone get it and we'll get herd immunity in four weeks. And we'll see if, you know, a half million people die in a month and if it's worth it or not. Uh, some folks in like the economic sphere have said it's it's better to accelerate this thing and avoid six months of economic ruin than wow. to do the opposite. So that's like it's a we have a the whole world is like experimenting live, right? Yeah. Um, but the the way we'll know is it's all about growth rate, right? And so if the if the growth rate turns negative, meaning that we are declining the number of new cases per week, then you can presume you're at the peak. If the growth rate is positive, then it will get worse, right? And so it's not about the number of cases. I mean, obviously, if we if we have a total number of cases that hits, you know, 150 million out of 300 million people, at some point there's we're running out of new folks to add, right? But in general, it's like the new cases added per week is it going up, going down? And so yeah. Fauci predicts that this thing will peak in three to eight weeks which if it's true is probably bad news because you run the numbers and there's no way that we can service all the folks who are going to get sick in the next five weeks. So that would imply an overload. So hopefully it peaks at six, eight, 10, 12 weeks. That is dependent on actions that happen today to slow the exponential growth. Which is exactly what we're encouraging. 
And mm-hmm. I got a few questions about that, but practical questions. Playgrounds. Are playgrounds an awful idea? Uh, would you pay a hundred bucks for the playground? But that's the question that I asked myself, right? So I, yeah. I have three kids. They are driving us crazy, frankly, in the house. It is a challenging time. It's going to be a really rough 60 days or whatever it is. But I'm not going to playgrounds. Uh, this thing lives on metal. It lives in moisture droplets. Kids are sweaty. Kids are sneezy. Um, all kinds of stuff. Snotty. They're snotty. Weirdly, I've heard, do not use this to make your life choices, but I have yeah. heard that the snottier you are, the less likely you are to have it because it lives in your lungs. Runny, runny nose is not a symptom of yeah. COVID-19. So it's not, like, it's not like it's not like a signal, if, anything, if nothing else. But a kid could have a runny nose in addition to everything else because they yeah, like, constantly have them. My two-year-olds had a runny nose for like eight months straight. You right. know? Like, exactly. <laughs> um, People have allergies that cause everything that was that's totally uh, yep. disassociated from their COVID risk. So a buddy of mine went to the playground last weekend. He noted all the parents are standing uh, six feet apart. They're not chatting. They're being good social distancers. And then the kids are on the same jungle gym. So it's like – It doesn't matter. It's, it doesn't matter. You're still cross-vectoring. So yep. to me, why would you risk it, right? If the only way in your entire life to get a son is to go to the one playground in town that's like that or go completely insane – I'd think about it. But if you can walk, if you can hike, if you have a backyard, if you can go to your mom's house and play in her pool, like just think of it as count the number of people you're within six feet of and like lower that number. And playgrounds have a lot of people, right? Even today they have a lot of folks because not everyone's on the same plan. Yeah. The next question is about uh, walks, you know, especially in suburban areas where there's not a lot of, you know, density, if you're in an urban area, can you get to a less dense area and go for a walk? That's all great, right? Yeah. I mean, we so we're cooped up and every day we get all like tired of being in the house. I grab all the kids and we just bike laps around the neighborhood for half an hour. So unless you are walking through somebody's sneeze cloud from five seconds ago, it's incredibly low risk to be outside. Like go outside, get fresh air, go on a hike. Dan and I have mutual friends who've been hiking last weekend. Um, so yeah, walks, bikes are fine. The the, the car thing's funny. Our neighbors uh, yesterday took a quote unquote car ride to nowhere. They just drove an hour loop around the Bay area. Like go see a bridge, go see a hill, get back in the car, go home. Um, so you can drive to a hiking trail, you can do whatever. It's all about personal interaction. So you can do whatever does not involve being next to people that you can't trust. Yeah. Um, okay. Tra- uh, transition to our last few questions here, uh, which are kind of about the future. And then mm-hmm. one, one little, uh, it, stick in the spoke. Uh, then, so what does success look like in your mind, Robbie, a uh, month or months or a year from now, um, especially assuming that the vaccine does not come for roughly a year, something like that. What would success look like, let's say, in September or October in your mind? Uh, to, to paraphrase Fauci, we will be successful if you look back and feel like we overreacted, right? Like if I look back on this and say, man, I was home for 60 days and my kids are driving me nuts and they're yelling and screaming all the time. And no one got sick. Well, like, hot damn, like we did it, guys. You know, um, if we get to a place where you never see an article about a hospital setting up cots in a parking lot, that's success. So it is incredibly unlikely that we'll walk out of this with fewer than 
10 million people being infected. That's a low, low number. It's probably tens of millions to 100 million plus. But if the death count is, I mean, it's still big numbers. And I'm just sort of playing with thin air. Like the death count could hit a million plus if things go sideways, right? So I guess if it's just down in the United in the, States. Yeah. So if it's, and again, like, yeah, sure, it's quote unquote mostly old folks, but like I love my, my grandparents too, you know? <laughs> um, so, so, I guess if it's like below 100K, just to pull a number of thin air, like most seasonal flus these days have like 50,000 deaths in the USA. So if we're even in spitting distance of that, it's probably a huge success. But I would think more in terms of, are we totally overwhelming the hospital, hospital system? Because like right. if the disease ends up being highly lethal, you can't stop that by wishing, right? All we can do is try to reduce this, the speed of spread. And so the like, this is like Robbie's job, right? Like, the metric has to like like match the actual objective, right? And so in this case, the objective is to slow the spread. So the metric should be spread overload. And so if we never have hospitals being overloaded, or if the growth rate drops to you know five ten percent per day, not thirty three, like that's a good result. Yeah, um, but here's the next question: What do you predict uh, for the future of our nation and the rest of the world in the coming months? Um, and how this will affect various aspects of society, given your job? Uh, well, you know, there are certain things that, like, in my actual job job that I can't talk about because I work in a public company. But, like, just in general, I mean, like, we're going to slow down. Like, obviously, we're, the pace of life will slow down dramatically. You know, I think that you look at the NBA is taking a 30-day minimum break. Uh, like, most schools are at least three weeks closed. I think all those numbers are much more likely to be extended than shortened, right? And so it's plausible to me that we'll have four, eight, 12 weeks of really intense social distancing. And then you can't just all go back to work the next day. Like if we hypothetically keep the number of infections below 100 million, uh, that means there's 200 million folks who haven't had it yet. And you can't just say, everyone go back to concerts, go to work. So I would suspect that this will be in our lives as like a thing we think about for months and months, maybe in the next year. Will I be stuck at home the whole time? No, I don't think so. Uh, I think we're trying to slow the pace down. So I would be surprised if we have eight plus weeks of really intentional social distancing that might even go to 12 or whatever. Like in China, they were under functional lockdown, I think two months, um, once they got their hands on things. And they're not like rushing back today, right? There's uh, various charts you can find of, in the 1918 pandemic, certain cities had a double dip because they they celebrated too early and went back to work and then never got sick a second time. So you want to meter out the, the the interaction beyond this. So I think that once everyone kind of gets the memo, and frankly, like in so much as my concern, back to the very first question was around people not believing it's real. Like when you know someone is in the hospital or you know somebody who's a nurse who's giving you reports, like you can't deny the reality. So I think that once we emerge from the current stage uh, and get through the first wave, it's plausible that we could like reopen d- daily life because everyone's going to be minimizing those vectors. And so we don't have to all go super locked down to account for the reckless folks because like no one's going to be reckless. Right. So right. it's, it's total conjecture. It's just like, what do you think people are going to do in this country when they have freedom, but also know of the risks? I would like to think we'll go back to something approximating life, um, in the months to come, but like in the intermediate period, like getting macroeconomic, like you're going to have retail, you're going to have food services, you're going to have airlines, entertainment, 
casinos, oil companies, like they're all going to have tough quarters. And like, I don't know what that means for, does it all snap back? Does it stay slow for a while? Do folks respend when it's over? Do we all say, oh, good, lockdown's over. Everyone fly to Vegas, buy airline tickets, go to restaurants and like fill their coffers. I would expect some of that, like all my favorite restaurants, I'm going to be buying dinner from them for months and this is all said and done to pay them back. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. Okay, last one, and this is a little bit of like a fly in the ointment. Uh, some recent charts that show Italy and South Korea's testing side by side have like a giant spike in 20 to 29-year-olds testing positive in South Korea that we don't see other places. Um, I think the idea from just some brief reading is that perhaps a lot of people in their 20s have it and don't have symptoms, um, and that maybe Italy, since they're not just testing everyone the way that South Korea did, it's not showing up. So they end up they're testing based more on symptoms like China did and like other places have done. Have you seen that info? So I saw the, the chart someone posted about the difference in um, infection rate by age. I really don't know much beyond that. The natural conclusion is like we know for a fact that South Korea has enormous testing capability. Like in yeah. my doc, I'll pull it up real quick. I think that they're doing on a per capita basis, like per thousand people, a hundred times what we're doing, maybe more. Yeah. So they're doing, they're doing 5,000 tests per million people right now. And we've done per million people. Where's the USA? 50, right? So they're at a hundred X. Um, so yeah, it's, it's likely that they can test everyone. And then that's the good news, right? So if it turns out that all these South Korean millennials have the disease and aren't dying, like even better news for the, the morbid, the, the morbidity, lethality by, by age group. Um, it doesn't mean did. that it's like slowing the spread because apparently they've all got it. Right. But, um, right. yeah, that's, that's the only conclusion I would draw from that data, but like, I'm looking at a few data points and drawing an inference. Yeah. And, uh, there was just a paper that came out today, um, and I'm going to quote from it. 86% of infections went undocumented. And per person, these undocumented infections were 55% as contagious as the documented infections. Where is where is that? What um, country is that in? I can't remember where the data is from. It might be from South Korea. Got it. Um, but the idea just being like more info is coming out that people can be asymptomatic and still spread this. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to combine all that together, the most likely explanation of that spike in South Korea of 20-somethings is that they are just the asymptomatic people who are spreading it. Perhaps they spread it for some reason. They are more likely to get it and not have symptoms than 30-somethings and kids. And just for whatever sort of, I don't know, genetic reasons or something like that. Yeah, and I, I'll, or, or we're just not – like there's probably some cutoff age where they're not testing everyone. Like I'm guessing they're not testing every seven-year-old. So like maybe yeah. it's that of those who are lower risk, the South Koreans – stop their testing at 18 years old or 21 years old. So like, that's why there's a huge surge there. They tested every four year old. They'll be the same thing. I don't know. It's put it this way. Um, like I said in the beginning, like my fear is less around my personal mortality risk and more yeah. around like, this is a health system wide, you know, country wide economy wide issue. And so, yeah, if like the mortality rate for 20 something is lower, great. But um, that's not what's driving the risk factor. If some country had like no old people getting sick, I'd be like, sweet, let's do whatever they're doing. Yeah. But yeah. we're not seeing that. Yeah. And this is not about uh, mortality. This is just about testing positive. And that's really the whole point of what we've been saying is like, 
those of us who can afford to isolate, we need to isolate so that fewer people get it. Not because all the people that get it are going to die, but because the more people get it, the more vulnerable people will also get it. And then a greater proportion of those people will die. Um, right. I'm not or, personally. Or anybody who needs a hospital bed. Like right. if, you, if you have a heart attack, if you have a baby, if you have a stroke. Like, stroke, right. You, yeah. you need that slack in the system. So if it's consumed all by this one thing, then we're all, we're all at higher risk because now our rare events get deadlier. Right. So, you know, it, right. it is, it is actually impacting, impacting everyone's like overall expected value or whatever. It's just like, we don't price in the risk of what if I call a hospital and they can't find a bed for me, but it does make, it does make you dear listener, like more at risk if a bunch of old folks are on ventilators because like you have a more strained system and certain nurses are sick. Like the thing, the, the overall security blanket that you rely upon is weakened by this. So it, it actually in everyone's selfish interest, even if it's not like your selfish interest with respect to COVID-19, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's both COVID and like the ancillary knock-on effects. Well, Robbie, thank you for helping us figure out how in spring of 2020 and and on to love our neighbors as ourselves, um, given the best of the data that we have available to us. I've got a link to your full document, as we said, and a couple of these CDC um, pages in the show notes. Robbie, thank you so much. My pleasure. Stay safe, guys.